On this episode of The Focus, we will circle back to the topic of COVID-19. It seems like everyone is talking about COVID-19, but it's important to revisit this topic as there is much to learn. At this point, there are mass vaccination drives throughout the nation, and we've passed a milestone. There are now more people vaccinated against COVID-19 than those who have tested positive for COVID-19. So to start our conversation, Dr. Jasmine, can you give us a quick rundown of the various vaccines and how each works or how well each works? Sure. Currently, there are three COVID-19 vaccines available to Americans. It can be difficult to keep up with the various vaccines and how they compare, so I'll attempt to make it a little simpler to understand. Two are more well-known vaccines because they've been available since December 2020. The first was the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, which was the first COVID-19 vaccine to receive emergency use authorization by the FDA. This was also the first widely available vaccine to use mRNA te technology. It's approved for use in those 16 years or older. The vaccine is administered at two doses, spaced 21 days apart. It has to be stored in very cold refrigerators for transport to make sure the vaccine is stable before administration. In the studies, it's been shown to be 95% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19 infections with eight cases of COVID in vaccinated individuals compared to 162 uh, individuals who received placebo. This vaccine also showed 100% efficacy in preventing hospitalization from severe COVID-19. The second vaccine to receive emergency use authorization in the U.S. was the Moderna vaccine which also received its approval in December 2020. This vaccine also uses mRNA drug delivery platforms and is approved for use in those that are age 18 and older. These vaccines can be stored in usual refrigerators as opposed to the super cold storage for, uh, required for Pfizer vaccines. This vaccine is administered in two doses spaced 28 days apart. In studies, it was shown to be 94.1% effective in preventing COVID-19, including severe disease. And notably, it too showed 100% of efficacy in preventing hospitalization from severe COVID. I've briefly mentioned the mRNA drug pl uh, delivery platform used to develop both of these vaccines, but I'll briefly go into more detail about what it is. Though this technology seems very new because we haven't heard of it being used widely before, mRNA drug delivery platforms have actually been around for decades in vaccine technology. Now the funding made available in drug development advancements have allowed for these to make prime time. These mRNA vaccines work by drug companies making the genetic material or mRNA instructions for how to make the COVID-19 spike protein that's found on the surface of the virus that causes COVID-19. This genetic material does not cause the virus itself, but teaches the body cells how to make the spike protein. Once the vaccine is administered and the body cells have used the mRNA to make the spike protein, the mRNA is broken down and destroyed by the body. Then once the spike proteins are made, it is displayed on the cell surface so that the body's immune system can detect it. Once the body sees the spike protein, it can tell that it doesn't belong there and the body creates an immune response with antibodies to, to the spike protein. 
This is similar to what would happen if a patient was infected with COVID-19 and developed natural immunity, but the vaccine makes your body create antibodies against the virus without actually being infected with the COVID-19 virus. The third vaccine um, and the most recent to receive emergency use authorization from the FDA is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's the only one-dose COVID-19 vaccine approved and is approved in those aged 18 and older. It has been shown in their study that it is 85% effective in preventing severe COVID-19 disease and is also 100% effective in preventing severe COVID-19 disease and hospitalization. It uses, instead of the mRNA vaccine technology, an adenovirus non-infectious carrier to transport genetic material required to create the immune response to protect you from COVID-19. So, Dr. Latanya, we've received messages or calls from family members asking if one vaccine is preferable over another. What are your thoughts on that? We do receive those calls from family members asking which vaccine they should get. Um, As you spoke about, Dr. Jasmine, there are currently three vaccines that are available. It's important to highlight that each of the vaccines is very safe. Each provide a good amount of protection against COVID-19. And so my advice to all of our family members and friends who've called me to ask me which vaccine uh, is best for them to take is whichever vaccine is offered to you. I know you just went over a lot of the numbers talking about the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson slash Janssen vaccine. And when you hear those numbers, you know, the numbers for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are a little bit lower. It's important to understand that that doesn't mean that it's less effective. And you really can't compare the, the two different types of vaccine. I say two different types because... Uh, As you spoke about earlier, Dr. Jasmine, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine utilize the mRNA technology, while the Johnson & Johnson vaccine utilizes the adenovirus vector. So it's really like comparing apples and oranges. It wouldn't be like comparing um, an apple to another apple. So I say all that to say that, you know, each of the vaccines uh, are extremely safe. Um, They're extremely effective in preventing severe disease. And so all that to say, take the first vaccine that is offered to you, the one that you can receive the quickest. There are a lot of things that we would consider and which vaccine may be offered to you. I think it really depends on what area of the country you live in. For people who live in the more rural areas, they'll probably be able to take either the Moderna vaccines or the Johnson and Johnson vaccine just because they don't require the ultra cold storage like the Pfizer vaccine requires. But important to know that all of these vaccines will do the job. And also, Dr. Jasmine, as you highlighted when you went over the data just a few moments ago, that all of these vaccines prevent severe COVID-19 disease. I think that for all of those patients that were in the study groups that actually received the, the vaccine, so they were in the, in the vaccine arm of the study, none of those patients died of COVID-19. And so that's something to highlight. So Dr. Kimberly, let's switch gears and discuss something that's been floating around on social media and in the news. Let's talk about the topic of vaccination hesitancy in the Black community. Is there any legitimacy in this? Tell us the facts. 
That's a great question, Dr. Latanya. There was a lot of media coverage around vaccine hesitancy within the Black community initially, but I think the concern was not legitimately uh, placed on the hesitancy towards um, receiving the vaccine amongst the entire American community. It was mostly just focusing on the Black community because of historical reasons. Um, There was a previous study that showed that across all uh, racial and ethnic groups, there were um, quite a bit of hesitancy about this vaccine, likely because of the the way that it rolled out, the fact that it's a new drug delivery system, as Dr. Jasmine explained. But as far as the actual numbers, um, the data from the Kaiser Family Foundation released in December showed that the number of African-Americans who would definitely not take the vaccine was a smaller in number, about uh, five to 10 percentage points difference than the number of white Americans who would not take the vaccine. And so actually, we should probably be discussing white community hesitancy in this vaccination as opposed to black community hesitancy and and shift years to discuss the issues with access to this vaccine um, amongst the black community, which legitimately was likely always the the issue um, was um, access. We've heard of various circumstances where sign up places within fully black communities were being um, taken by others who would come outside of the community in order to get the vaccine earlier. That's an access issue. That's not a hesitancy issue. And so this is where our concern should be. But in when you look at the data, the most recent data, it does not show that Black Americans are any more hesitant than any other ethnic group. It actually shows that they're more willing. Um, the key is access. So it has to be available within the Black community in order to take. And that's that's where we stand. Rarely when I hear from family members or friends, rarely do I hear a concern to actually take the vaccine. Everyone's waiting for their opportunity to come up. And of course, in in every circumstance, in every racial or ethnic group, there's going to be people who choose not to take the vaccine for one reason or another. Those things maybe could be mitigated with education um, on the vaccine and the safety of it which I think in general, the safety of these vaccines is being borne out with us having given so many uh, doses of the vaccines with very mild to no side effects at this point. So I think over time, we're going to see more acceptance of the vaccine in those people who were maybe concerned about uh, side effects. Um, And then you'll be left with those who are generally anti-vaxxers and those who may have political reasons as to why they're choosing not to get the vaccine, which would end up being a much smaller number. So first thing is access. And the next is education can improve our um, chances towards getting to some sort of herd immunity, if that's even possible with this virus. Dr. Jasmine, can someone get COVID-19 after being fully vaccinated? In the original studies, I can give you a little bit of details about what they presented and some of our gaps in knowledge based on that. In the Pfizer study, there are nine patients who tested positive for COVID-19 after being fully immunized for two months. 
As you can see, these studies only look at brief follow-ups, so we don't really know what happens in months or years out uh, after receiving vaccination or if booster vaccinations will be necessary. We also don't know if receiving two doses of vaccine weeks apart uh, give the antibody levels to, um, to really achieve adequate protection from this virus. I think we're still studying what our antibody titers mean and uh, if that if high titers correlate with high, with greater amounts of protection, but that that data is still yet to be uh, yet to be fully understood. And I think that's important because we've also anecdotally heard of individuals that have been fully immunized that have also been infected with COVID, but these have largely been asymptomatic or those with mild symptoms. It's important because it highlights that even those who are vaccinated against COVID don't develop severe enough disease that uh, will require hospitalization. And that's crucial to decrease the American the burden on the American uh, hospital system. This also highlights that preventative measures like hand washing, social distancing, and masking are still needed because uh, even though individuals are fully vaccinated, there is still a risk of getting uh, COVID-19. So we have to stay uh, vigilant in those efforts. Dr. Latanya, what are some of the long-term effects of COVID-19? Dr. Jasmine, it's very important that we talk about the long-term effects of COVID. So also very important to say is that most people will have mild COVID disease and they will recover fully. And so when we say mild disease, what we mean by that is that those patients won't require hospitalization. I will say that uh, one of our cousins had COVID back a few weeks ago, and she said that she was the sickest that she had ever been in her life, but she didn't require hospitalization. And so when I talked to her as she was recovering, I said, well, by definition, the fact that you didn't require hospitalization means that you had mild disease. Um, And so even though she felt extremely sick, um, that was what we consider mild from a medical standpoint. So you do have some patients who develop kind of long-term effects from COVID-19. You've heard the term long haulers or COVID long haulers. Um, Those could be people who are young and otherwise healthy, and they can have severe symptoms for weeks to months after the infection. Most of the time, they have symptoms like fatigue and shortness of breath. They may have a lingering cough for months. Some people have like joint pains, like arthritis-type pains. Other people have chest pains. Other long-term signs may be a persistent headache. Some people have severe headaches during the acute COVID infection, and those headaches can tend to linger. Also, people report that they have like fast or pounding heartbeat when they may just be sitting still, so having palpitations. Um, There is a young lady that works with me. She has a loss of taste and smell, and she had COVID probably about six months ago. And she said that her smell and taste still had not completely recovered. Other people have memory or concentration issues, sleep issues, rashes, hair loss. It can really cause any type of symptoms. Um, So those are what we consider mild long-term symptoms. But COVID can also affect the heart. 
Uh, it can cause like muscle damage to the heart. Patients can have congestive heart failure as a result of COVID-19. We often hear about COVID affecting the lungs. Patients can develop a chronic lung disease. It causes scarring in the lungs and can cause some long-term effects there. And then the neurological symptoms, patients can have uh, strokes, they can have seizures. Also, uh, they can have like a temporary paralysis. So all of those things are really, really concerning. And then one of the one of the side effects that we've heard a lot about is blood clots. COVID can cause blood clots and blood vessel problems just because it causes inflammation in the blood vessels. And so you can have blood clots in your legs and your lungs and your kidneys. It can lead to long-term kidney disease. And some patients actually have to be on dialysis long-term after getting COVID-19. Dr. Kimberly, it's been a year since COVID-19 has become our reality. What aspects of our society do you expect to change forever because of COVID? There are several elements of our society that will likely be highly affected by the fact that COVID-19 happened in 2020. I'll split things up from a personal perspective versus a medical community perspective. And I think everyone has their own opinions about their specific area of, um, of work and how things have changed because of it and what things will likely go away and what things will stay forever. From a medical perspective, one thing that COVID-19 significantly increased um, usage of, which had not been used previously, is virtual medical visits. I think this is here to stay. If you see a doctor who's quite a while away and you know you don't want to go in for a visit, I think the option to do a virtual visit is going to be something that we keep from here forward. It's something that we dabbled with prior to uh, COVID, but there was always a concern about uh, insurance reimbursement. That has been solidified because of COVID-19 because we needed it. So now I think you will have a choice as to whether to physically come in and see your doctor or have a virtual, a virtual visit. Within the hospital setting, I believe that likely mask wearing will probably is probably here to stay within the hospitals um, as far as employees go. Well, they'll probably likely require that we wear masks when we interact with patients from here forward. I could see in 10 or 15 years, we slightly get away from that. But I think as long as COVID-19 is floating around, that will likely stay. And that's my prediction. I can't, I, don't, I can't tell the future, but that's my prediction. In the personal realm, like our individual lives, I think we'll see what we saw, what was seen across Asia, maybe not to the, the extent at which it happened in Asia, but um, in some ways, what we noticed in this last winter is that our flu numbers nearly, you know, was non-existent in the, the winter of 2020 and 2021, whereas the flu kills a lot of people per year. And it just didn't happen this past year, partially because we were social distancing, but also partially because we were wearing masks. We were being very particular about washing our hands. I think that people like the fact that they didn't get sick <laughs> this winter, um, the ones who didn't get COVID and obviously didn't get the flu. And I think this will be a trigger for a lot of people to continue to wear masks when they go out, particularly in the winter, 
as well as to pay attention to hand washing and hand sanitizers, et cetera. So it definitely will change some of the ways that we interact with people. Being away from large groups of people for over a year now, um, I think will likely likely stay the norm amongst the vast majority. We went to we went in large group settings without a thought before COVID nineteen, and I think this generation or this this group of people will think about it uh, from here forward, and that may make a difference between whether we attend large group events, meaning hundreds or thousands of people in in small in small settings or not. So those are some of the things that I predict will likely stick around, um, as well as, you know, from our, our retail business, the fact that most of our retail is online right now, uh, we really made that huge jump away from in-person purchasing. That will likely stay. I think our malls were already in, in a decline before COVID. And I think this this was sort of the nail in the coffin as far as big malls, Mall of America, you know, the likelihood that it will it will resurface out of this pandemic to be better than before is low. It, it really will change our our society significantly. No different than what happened after 9-11, just on a much greater scale. And it'll do it worldwide. Um, I think travel will go back to where it was before. It'll take some time, um, particularly international travel. And I'm not, not quite sure what will happen when it comes to international travel as far as transiting to and from a country and if um, they'll continue to have a requirements for negative COVID testing or if a COVID vaccine verification is all that's necessary. So I'm not exactly sure what different nations will do. I think their, their requirements on Americans will stay pretty strict because of the fact that we don't have as much of a control over the um, vaccine spread in our nation as some other nations do. So there, there are several changes that are here and that aren't going away. And these are just a few that I predict um, will likely stick around. And there's others that I can't even foresee coming, you know, as we emerge from um, our nationwide uh, quarantine or pseudo lockdown that we had. So Dr. Jasmine, in your professional expertise, what do you expect will be some of the long-term manifestations of COVID? Meaning, is this virus going to be with us forever or will it ever go away? It's very difficult to say what long-term manifestations of the virus on an individual level will be um, because it affects each person differently. Uh, as Dr. Latanya mentioned, some have asymptomatic infections or very mild symptoms, and you would assume that they may have mild, if any, long-term effects. And then there are others with more severe disease that lead to hospitalization and a wide variety of issues, including lung failure, heart failure, kidney failure, blood clotting issues, and many others. Uh, there are also individuals who have milder forms of disease who continue to have issues with smell and taste, as well as respiratory symptoms months after in, in, initial infections as well. Um, with this virus being known for just over a year, I think we'll have to monitor those who have been infected with COVID long term to see if sequelae of their illnesses improve or resolve fully. As for how we live with, uh, with this virus, once we as a nation reach herd immunity, life may return to some degree of normal where we can gather again, travel and have large events and conduct life in many ways as we did pre-COVID, as you mentioned before, Dr. Kimberly. 
However, I think, as you mentioned as well, some public health measures that we've abided by for the last year won't go away. Um, masking may be here to stay, and we may never fully return to pre-COVID policies within hospitals and health systems due to the impact of this pandemic. As the virus and its variants continue to spread as well, it makes it harder to believe that one day this virus will completely disappear or be eradicated. However, I do think that as more people become vaccinated against the virus, its daily effects on our population will decline. To be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if COVID vaccinations become more routine, like influenza uh, vaccinations yearly, um, or at least with some regular interval because of the huge impact COVID-19 has had on the world stage and with how rapidly we're seeing new variants develop. As have been broadcasted by public health and infectious disease experts, prevention and preparedness um, on a national and international level will be key to prevent, uh, one, the, the rise of additional variants that can evade the vaccines that we already have, and also to prevent larger public health emergencies of this magnitude in the future. There's still a lot to learn about COVID-19. In our efforts as healthcare providers and taking care of COVID-19 patients, as well as researchers learning more about this virus and how it affects us in the long and short term, there will be wins and losses along the way. The Doctors Washington would like to take a moment to remember the over 500,000 lives that have unfortunately been lost in this country alone from COVID-19. These were mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, daughters, and sons, lives that were cut short but not forgotten. Their deaths will be remembered in history as the single largest tragedy in this country to date. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. Please remember to follow, share, and like us on your preferred social media platform. Also return each Wednesday for our weekly episodes. Until next time.